The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. One of, probably one of the most important fruits from taking the time to study loving-kindness in a more formal way, looking at some of the teachings from the time of the Buddha and other commentaries since then, and then, of course, doing our own work, is to respect the power. You know, we're not just helplessly stuck with the mind state that we have at any given time, but there's really something, there's always something we can do. There's always a present moment participation and that present moment participation affects how the mind is, how things unfold from here on. So you may, you know, a lot of times, because the formal loving-kindness practice that actually developed, got formulated much later than the time of the Buddha from the Vasudhimaga, this book called The Path of Purification, you know, it, it feels can feel to some people artificial or a lot of work, you know, remembering somebody, where do you start, and then repeating the phrases. But so that particular formulation, you know, for whatever reason, may not work. But that doesn't mean learning how to direct the mind isn't useful. It's just we each have to find our own way that we're and whenever, whatever kind of negative or, you know, not so great mind state that is there, we never should feel like there's nothing we can do. Of course, mindfulness itself is a very, in a sense, a very assertive thing to do in a moment. Even though mindfulness isn't necessarily trying to redirect the mind, it will redirect the mind. So that is one way we redirect the mind, is simply by being aware of how things are. But in being mindful, we begin to recognize, you know, like what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. And so it's totally appropriate, just like, you know, we'll avoid situations that are dangerous or that are uncomfortable. It's totally appropriate that we'd want to take care of the environment of the mind in the same way. It doesn't always have to be neurotic to want to want to sort of make things different than they are or fix things. The, the neurotic part is when um, we want things to change and we've created a sense of self so that we'll be disappointed if they don't in fact change. But there's nothing wrong, you know, if there's a child crying, there's nothing wrong with picking the child up and comforting the child. Or if somebody leaves a trash can lying on the ground, there's nothing wrong with picking it up and throwing it away. And it's exactly the same in taking care of the mind and heart. You know, we're, we should be interested, I mean, more than anything, more than our neighborhood, more than our family, as important as that those things seem. It's much more important to be attentive to the shape, qualities of the mind, and to learn how to be skillful, to cultivate, to support, 
beautiful states of mind. So I mentioned in the past too, and I'll just go through it briefly, sort of four expressions, or you could say four motivations for loving kindness. So that that are that can be used in a wholesome way. Like uh, there is a wholesome fear or wholesome regret. You could call it wholesome concern or wholesome regret. When we understand that, you know, the kind of conditioning we have, not all of it is very skillful. And so wholesome concern will arise. Like, yeah, I want, you know, I'm going to be seeing my mom and dad or I'm going to be doing this important work. I want to be relating, not with defensiveness, but with love, with kindness, with friendliness. Because I know it's easy to really mess things up in a way that will be harmful to me and others. So that's that motivation of wholesome fear. Like we're, we're interested in cultivating the state of kindness, friendliness, as a way of protecting ourselves from making a mistake or acting out in ways that's harmful. This is a very useful motivation. There's nothing wrong with this. Unless we've constructed a self that's bad because of all the mistakes we've done in the past. And that's really what the motivation is about, is sort of reinforcing the sense of being bad. But fear is not inherently a a neurotic tendency in the mind. It can be very appropriate to be afraid or to be concerned or to be regretful at times. It's like useful information. So that's one motivation, just a motivation of being concerned, not wanting to make a mistake, not wanting to harm Another motivation is to be attracted to something beautiful. Again, it could be neurotic, you know, like I really want to be seen as the most loving person in the room. But we can just be naturally attracted, naturally aspiring to love because it's beautiful. Why wouldn't we want to, just like, you know, if we're at a buffet, we're going to be attracted to the food that looks most beautiful. Or, you know, if we have options in a way that doesn't harm others, we're naturally going to gravitate to be around people we like to be around. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in the same way, as we understand there are different mind states to abide in, we're naturally going to be attracted, aspire to abide in really beautiful mind states. So we want to be on the lookout for that motivation, you know, to be the motivation of being attracted to what's beautiful in terms of mind states. And that, you know, these motivations are different waves that we can ride, that the mind or heart can ride supporting the development of loving kindness or friendliness in all ways in our lives. So fear, wholesome desire, we call uh, chanda, not tanha, which is sort of like grasping, but just a a natural movement of desire toward what's beneficial. That's not neurotic. That's really natural and unavoidable. You know, just like wanting to get a good night's sleep doesn't have to be neurotic, or wanting to feed the body doesn't have to be neurotic. It can be really wholesome. And then the third motivation is the motivation of freely giving. So you could call it the motivation of dana or generosity. So here, loving kindness. And this is, I find, just one of the fruit of my practice that more and more it's just easy for me 
to fall into this place where I, the heart, the mind, is happily radiating out, radiating out love as a free gift. And it's not so much that I'm trying to get myself to a beautiful place, which would be the second motivation, as it is, it just feels really good to give away love, to love everybody. It's like freely giving, endlessly giving. And uh, so this is a motivation, you know, the, the motivation of giving, the motivation of dana. This is pure dana because we're not expecting anything back. The giving itself, in a sense, is the fruit that we get. We don't need anybody to know that we're sending out loving kindness to anybody or everybody. We're just happy to have that as a mind state or as a way of being from time to time. And then the, the fourth is more simple. It's like not even, not even at this point needing uh, to construct a sense of good and bad, like a wholesome and an unwholesome mind state, sort of losing that distinction and discovering that we can trust the nature of the mind, that the nature of the mind, the unconstructed nature of the mind is already beautiful, it's already loving, it's already intimate, it's already whatever we'd want to have. So that, it's like that motivation is we could say like we're motivated to let go or we're motivated to trust the nature of the mind or to trust things as they are or to trust that love is already doing, being whatever it is. That I don't need to be this fountain of love generously radiating out in all directions. So as beautiful as that is, it's still a little complicated versus a more unconditional trust. So just to, you know, and not to even try, although you can experiment, but just when you do, when you are practicing, just to sort of get a sense of where you are. Is it that you're practicing out of some kind of wholesome fear and you're taking, in a way, taking refuge in the wholesome state of, of metta, loving kindness, to protect yourself, to create, like, you know, there's a lot of, Influences that could be triggering impatience or irritation or negativity of some sort. And I'm really coming back to the phrases, coming back to the different elements of my practice and basically creating a bubble for ourselves to protect us from the other influences, external and internal, that might send our mind off in a different direction. Or am I motivated by this beautiful taste I've had of loving kindness and I want more of it because it just felt so healing and whole and good and it just feels like a great place to abide? Are we motivated just to give away this good feeling because that just feels great to be giving away this good feeling? Or are we motivated to let go and to trust and to let things be the way they are, to let the mind, the heart operate as a sort of as a natural unfolding? Now, one of the, um, just a, a distinction I wanted to make um, in terms of the, you know, the generosity 
that one of the reasons that we're content just to be in that, that universal state of loving kindness is it leaves us uh, with a confidence in the heart. There's a story from the time of the Buddha where he gave this he gave this sort of frightening talk where he said something like, um, you know, monks and nuns who enjoy the requisites, you know, kind of get attached to the robes, to the food, or get involved in other kinds of sense pleasures. Um, that they're they're gonna they're basically spoiling the dana, the, the gift that they're getting from the supporters, and that they're uh, suffer because of that. You know, go to hell basically in their next life, something like that. And uh, it scared a lot of the monks and nuns <laughs> because you know it's easy to take things for granted. You know that the lay people are going to like you and feed you and give you robes and build you huts so you can do your practice. It's easy for all of us to take things for granted. And uh, the Buddha went on retreat, and when he came back, uh, he noticed a lot of people missing. (laughs) The the ranks of the nuns and monks had thinned out. In fact, actually, after that talk, it said that 60... Let's see how... I think it's down here... The discourse was potent, was so potent that it caused 60 monks to cough up blood, another 60 to leave the monkhood, and another 60 to become completely liberated. <laughs> but anyway, then he went on retreat. He came back, and the ranks had been thinned out. So he said to Ananda, his attendant, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you teach them about um, all the different reasons to breathe easily, like not to be tight about being a monk or a nun. And he said, there are as many ways to breathe easily, like to feel okay about how we're being supported in our life. Because, you know, we're not monks and nuns, but we're all of us, each in our own way, we're being supported by all kinds of causes and conditions, you know? It's amazing how comfortable, how supported we are. Just the climate and the structures of our home and the quality of the food and the loving kindness we receive, the friendliness and just the orderliness of our community. These are all amazing gifts that we're receiving. And it's easy to see, like, why me? Especially when we hear about how people live in other parts of the world or even other parts of Minneapolis, let alone the world. It's easy to feel guilty, like, why do I deserve this? And so... The Buddha says to Ananda and to the other leaders, you know, you should have talked to these younger uh, monastics about all the different ways to breathe easy, like to feel good about your life. And he said, uh, you know, simple compassion, simple love. And he, he was clear. I'm not talking, you know, about being fully absorbed in some deep concentrated state where you're just this globe or orb of radiating loving kindness, but just simple moment of simple love for all beings is caused to breathe easy, the Buddha says. That it's like if we can from time to time really care about all beings, so it's not about I love Jana because she's, you know, been so supportive, but it's like I love Jana, but I love all beings. 
that kind of indiscriminate love, then that's enough to, uh, so that, in a sense, we can receive the free gifts of food and robes without you know, feeling guilty or feeling upset. To really see a moment of loving kindness as a beautiful gift Another famous discourse, some of you might have heard of this one, but the story the Buddha tells uh, of himself in a former life where he was a householder named uh, Wimala uh, Walama, Walama. And uh, he had this amazing gift. He gave, as a layperson, he gave this amazing gift of 84,000 gold trays filled with silver, 84,000 silver trays filled with gold, 84,000 copper trays filled with gems, 84,000 elephants with gold ornaments, gold banners covered with nets of gold thread. He gave 84,000 chariots spread with lion skins, tiger skins, leopard skins, saffron colored blankets with gold ornaments, gold banners covered with nets of gold thread, 84,000 milk cows with tethers of fine jute and copper milk pails, 84,000 maidens adorned with jeweled earrings. He gave 84,000 couches spread with long fleeced coverlets, white wool coverlets, embroidered coverlets, rugs of deer hide, each with a canopy above, red cushions on either side, 84,000 lengths of cloth of finest linen, finest cotton, finest silk, to say nothing of the food and drink, staple and non-staple food, lotions and bedding. They flowed, as it were, like rivers. And so uh, what the Buddha says is that that gift was given. He gave that gift in a previous life, but there was really nobody worthy to give that gift to. I, he doesn't even say who he gave that gift to. So he's saying, you know, that's, there's some merit in that, but because it wasn't given to somebody who was worthy of a gift, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. And he said, if one were to feed one person with right view, you know, who had some deep insight, that would be more fruitful than the gift, that great gift that I gave in my past life. Or if one were to feed uh, a once return, so somebody not just with deep insight, but well on the way to full enlightenment, that would be the same as feeding 100 people with deep insight. And then it just goes on like this. You know, one fully enlightened being would be, you know, 100 times greater than you know, somebody well on their way to full enlightenment. Or one, there's a, in the tradition, there's something called a private Buddha, or somebody who has full awakening, but without getting any teachings. So on their own, they figure out how to let go of every sort of self-centered greed, anger, delusion. They're called a Pacheta Buddha, or a private Buddha. Private in the sense that they don't teach. They're, they don't have the personality to be a good teacher, so they have deep insight wisdom and compassion, but they're not necessarily good at teaching. So they're a private Buddha. So feeding one private Buddha one meal is like feeding a hundred arahats a meal. You know, he's, he's going to go on. Or feeding one Buddha, so somebody with full and uh, who realized the truth on their own and could teach, is a hundred times, same as a hundred times feeding a private Buddha. And feeding the Buddha and all the monks and nuns is a hundred times greater than just feeding the Buddha. You know, so you're feeding all of the community of practitioners. And building a, a dwelling 
dedicated to the Sangha, to those people who are dedicating their life to practice, is a hundred times greater than feeding the Buddha and all the Sangha. Going to refuge to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, like orienting your life in that way, is greater than feeding a hundred or building a hundred dwellings for the community, right? Um, undertaking the precepts is greater than uh, taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So de- dedicating your life to non-harming is much more useful than taking refuge. If one were to develop even just one whiff of a heart of goodwill, you know, so the way to interpret that is like actual loving kindness, universal loving kindness. So not about one person, not about a particular relationship, but the heart that just cares indiscriminately for the whiff or the length of one breath is greater than all of those previous things. And then just to finish it, you know, develop the insight into the ephemeral nature, the insubstantial nature for the length of a snap of a finger greater than um, undertaking or than uh, loving kindness for the length of one breath. So anyway, it's an interesting discourse. And it really shows that the more external behaviors like building residence for serious practitioners, as beautiful as that is, doing the practice, you know, dedicating yourself to practice, dedicating ourselves to non-harming, having insight into loving kindness, insight into the ephemeral and permanent nature of things, much more, as a gift to ourselves and others, much more potent. So I kind of like that. So when we can abide in loving kindness, you know, notice that healing because because it is such a powerfully wholesome state, there's a, a quality of trust. Like we really trust, in a sense, this life or this heart or whatever you want to call it because we're recognizing that whatever we might have like desired for ourselves in order to become good or to become uh, important or to become uh, like to feel good like what we call in psychological circles self-esteem when we're abiding in that universal kind of love in all directions we recognize something deeply beautiful and it's right here it's sort of arising right here in the mind in the heart and so it eliminates doubt about the value of our of the heart of the mind it just becomes so clear that everything we want is here so the work our work is always here you know this heart this mind here and now So we have about a half an hour left. I wanted to just sort of put out some things and just have maybe a handful of discussions about different aspects of loving kindness. So first, just the, the point that, you know, there's, there's two avenues for insight. And often in Buddhist circles, you know, what gets emphasized is seeing dukkha, having insight into dukkha. We sit still and we feel 
you know, the irritation of not moving. The body hurts, the body's restless. Or they're, we're sitting and the mind is really quiet and then emotional pain comes up from the past, let's say some painful memory or something. And so a lot of the teachings are about not being afraid of difficult mental or physical experience, whether in daily life or in sitting practice, learning how to be stable with it. And then in that awareness of difficult experience, starting to see that it's impermanent, that it's impersonal, that any kind of identification with this is suffering. But there's a whole other avenue for insight, I'm sure you know. And this is like awakening to what's beautiful. And this is just as valid as a path for awakening as awakening to what's not beautiful. And, you know, generally we need to cultivate insight along both of these avenues. Understanding what's beautiful, understanding what's not beautiful. And I think the important point here is just to notice, like, if you don't like this practice, you know, you'd rather go back to being mindful of your pain. You know, and that's sort of interesting. It should be interesting, like, oh, that's interesting about the way my mind understands the practice. Or like, you only want to do loving kindness practice or some kind of reflection on what's beautiful. Because you just don't want to be with, you know, our ordinary, disturbed, agitated body and mind. So get me someplace beautiful, lofty. You know, we, we love things that, you know, like the reflection in the Buddha, or gratitude practice, or forgiveness practice, or loving kindness practice, or, you know, another one of the reflections the Buddha taught is uh, reflecting on the devas. Uh, devas, the celestial beings, you know, beings with really pure minds, pure hearts, like angels. Is a, that's another meditation that the Buddha would recommend. Because those beings basically reflect the heart when it's not under the influence of greed and aversion. So, you know, we're all, everything in this reality, you know, everything's reflecting everything else. So when we bring to mind angelic beings, we're going to, you know, we can't really imagine an angelic being without actually imagining it. You know, like, so what is that imagination? Where is that imagination? It's here and now, in the mind, in the heart. Where else could it be? Same with, like, where you imagine the Buddha, or we imagine universal love, like I was talking about before. So, the, this, just to kind of check in about your attitude about reflecting on beauty, what's beautiful. And we only have our own imagination, our own experience to draw from when we reflect on what's beautiful. So the interesting thing is we're tapping into what is already here and now. And I, this is a, inside, a powerful insight I had... Uh, Right when I was beginning, you know, a couple of years into my practice, I think it was like 84, and I was on a silent meditation retreat, meditation yoga retreat, and um, I'd really connected with this Indian saint, uh, Swami Shivananda, who died, I never met him, he died in 64, I think it was. But I'd done, a, I'd read a lot of his stuff, and I had studied with a number of his disciples. And so I was just sort of being inspired by him, I was sort of lying on the grass, Santa Barbara, looking up at the sky. <laughs> Those nice scenes. 
and just just feeling like uh, really grateful to have sort of connected with this person and these teachings, and uh, and then just all of a sudden the thought arose, you know, that whatever I was imagining was right here, you know. I don't actually know this guy, and and whatever the mind can concoct or create has to be already here. And it was a real sort of a flipping of the mind, like to see that because I I was having this very powerfully beautiful thought about this person, this Swami, this monk. And then I realized that beautiful thing was right here. That mind, you know, it was just the mind. The mind had projected some aspect of itself and then recognized it as very beautiful. And, you know, we decorate it by saying, well, that's how I imagine Swami Shivananda was or something like that. So this is... This is part of this work of loving kindness. It's why it can feel a little artificial, because we're trying to delve into or uncover, you know, using uh, using our friends, but we're not actually using our friends or what we call the benefactor or the easy person, because we don't really we can't get inside of their goodness. You know, all we have is how we understand how our heart recognizes their goodness. And in a way, we can't really see or understand something unless we see or understand it here. Does that make sense? So whatever goodness you've ever imagined somebody outside of you was or is, that you understand. It's something you're reflecting, something you already know. Where else could it be? So that's why the mechanics of the practice is the way that it is. We use other things, you know, other people. It doesn't matter, actually, how you creatively bring somebody to mind. I mean, you could just, like the Buddha suggests, you know, you could bring to mind angelic beings. Well, you maybe never have met an angelic being. It doesn't matter. What matters is the process of imagining or bringing to mind, sort of distilling all of what you know about what's beautiful. And then just create a convenient container for that. Whether it's your auntie who was just so kind to you, it's your convenient container, or the Buddha, or the Dalai Lama, or Mother Teresa, or yourself, or it doesn't really matter, does it? What matters is that somehow we're uh, reflecting on what's beautiful and kind of healing the heart that is attached, caught up in negativity negative thoughts about our situation, about who we are, about who everybody else is. Seeing, we're seeing the negative, but not with insight, but with reactivity. So, you know, it's just perpetuating itself. And then, in this sense, this avenue really needs, should be developed before the second avenue, where we're opening to what's difficult. Because when we open to what's beautiful, really beautiful, we start to feel content. And so then when we open to what's not beautiful, we can begin to move toward that with a heart that's stable and content. And we can actually see what that painful or unpleasant or negative state of mind is. But when we try to open to something heavy or difficult, when we're already, in a sense, afflicted by it, we're going to move toward it in a defensive way. So we may think we're being mindful but we really want it to go away. We're not there to understand it or to open to it. 
we're there to get rid of it, even if we don't say that to ourselves. So generally, in the way the Buddha taught, he would emphasize various absorption in beautiful states, like loving-kindness, before emphasizing uh, a more straightforward vipassana or wisdom practice, which generally, you know, when the mind isn't absorbed in beautiful states, life is a mixture, but definitely comes with what's unpleasant. There's just a lot of it around. You know, a lot of self-centered drama, a lot of greed, a lot of aversion that we see inside, and of course we see around us and being acted out in other people. So any thoughts about, you know, just your own, and just generally this point about two avenues, insight, awakening to what's beautiful, awakening to what's challenging and difficult, and just your own personal relationship, you know, and, and how you, when you look at your spiritual life, just kind of your own approach, and maybe how it's been off, or maybe how you've sort of figured it out, how to be balanced in that. Anything come to mind? Questions? Yeah, Doug. I like the idea of what you're talking about makes me think a little bit about some of my Christian friends who uh, have the same imagination of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, some arguments I've gotten in the past with some of these, well, this is what Jesus would do. And then someone else would say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that, he'd do this. And then they get into an argument about what this spiritual imagined person would do. Yeah, and I don't know that question that's what I thought when we were talking about this. Yeah. Well, and that's the, just like I said with the, the negative, when we're opening to what's difficult in life, the, we have to be on the lookout for aversion, even in very subtle ways, like being in a hurry to really open to this challenging, difficult experience. And then with, when working with the beautiful, we have to be on the lookout for attachment and taking the beauty personally. So that this is this personal relationship I have with God or the angelic being or even my own love, you know. And then it starts to get ossified because then we try to make it more than a moment-to-moment -moment happening. You know, it's like a thing. It becomes a solid object. And that's the problem with um, personal deities is that they become... Uh, objectified, you know, we create images and, uh, you know, like Thai Buddhas look like this, but that's not right because it doesn't look like, you know, Tibetan Buddhas are different and, I mean, we can get in all kinds of arguments, not about doctrine, even about silly things, you know, about whether how we bow, you know, in different Buddhist traditions, like here in the West we, we hardly bow at all, here at Kamagon at least, and, you know, but in Thailand they bow one way, in Tibet they bow another way, and Zen, it's a third way, and Japan and Korea, you know, and it's just so easy to bring our habit of judgment and attachment and reactivity to these beautiful things. Yeah, so attachment is the, 
is the thing we need to be aware of when we're working with what's beautiful. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, Jana. Well, I've always, um, I'm one of those people who has a hard time with metta. Like, I was joking with a friend, he asked why I didn't come to the first class, and I was like, oh, I can't stand metta. (laughs) Which is, you know, it's meant to be a joke, but there is a little bit of truth to it, in that, you know, it does seem like a lot of work, and it does seem like, you know, I'm working really hard to conjure this sort of fake state, and so Mm -hmm. I have this, like, aversion to this fake state, and and so it was interesting when you said, oh, yeah, notice notice that, that you actually prefer opening to painful states rather yeah. than, you know, what I consider to be these fake, beautiful states. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, you know, and I think the motivation for wanting to open to these, what I think are more real states because they're sort of negative, um, is that I want them to go away. So that's yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, so then you can, you should start there because that's where you're at. Like, I want these things to go away. So then, then sort of distill that desire because part of that desire is wholesome. It's totally appropriate to want afflictive states to go away. But we want to approach it with intelligence. So then look and say, well, what would help kind of be more skillful having insight into what's going on here? Well, I'm in a hurry. You know, I really... So maybe if I felt more contentment, I wouldn't be in such a hurry. Well, what can I do to feel more content, more at ease? You know, what would refresh the mind and heart? So, and, and you have, we have to find the right motivation. And I, I mentioned a few things right at the beginning. I forget what I said, but it's like it's important to understand that what we're doing in the loving-kindness practice, it has to be a creative moment-to-moment endeavor. It can't be automatic pilot, like just going through the motions. We have to understand, I'm really trying to create a beautiful place for the mind so so that there's just no way to argue with yourself because we're really just trying to create a be- authentically beautiful place, not a pretend beautiful or an artificial beautiful place. So, and we have total f- permission to do it in any way that works. You know, and to be creative and, well, this isn't working, so let me try it this way. So as long as we know what we're trying to do is to create a resonant, beautiful mind state because it's healing, it leads to contentment, it helps make the body-mind stable, you know. So there's basically no reason to argue with with that intention. And we just have to be willing to be creative so when the teacher says to do it this way, we say we listen and we go, oh, I understand why that might work for some minds, but my mind isn't like that. And if I do that, I'm just going to cultivate aversion. So let me just explore, like, how 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 to enliven this heart and mind, how to sort of uh, cultivate contentment, you know, something that's really beautiful. And you could even use your memory, like, when has my mind felt really beautiful? When has my heart felt really beautiful? What were the approximate causes for that? You know, so look back at other times when there was something really beautiful shining in your heart and mind, whether it was gratitude or forgiveness or kindness or compassion or peace. You know, and then, and then go back there and, and work with that. Because it doesn't have to be loving kindness. But it's, it's some, like, what is the way our mind most easily comes to wholeness? That's really the question. Yes, Sharon. Well, that's kind of 
Yeah. But that's, that's a much more natural, easy, flowing um, release. You sort of touch that gratitude and that awe and that um, openness. And Can you do it when, you, when you're here, or do you have to be in it? So what is your mind doing? Like you have an image, maybe of a place or whatever. But, but what is your mind? How is your mind relating to that image? Or do you know what I mean? Like what? What? Uh, yeah, just say a little bit more about what the mind is doing when it falls or opens to that beautiful place. Yeah. So, you know, it might be, you know. Yeah. Well, that's why, like I mentioned, I don't know, you were here the last couple of weeks, is that right? Yeah, that's why sometimes generic groups are easier for some people than specific people. And I mentioned that that's often the case for me, that I often, as easy as any particular person, you know, particular people can be easy for me too, but uh, it's always been easy for me to use all beings. And, you know, different people will pop in as I'm reflecting on all beings. But it's not about anyone in particular, but all beings. And I include myself in that, too, you know, when I do that. But it's fine. And then when you're in it, so you use that image of nature, you know, and you drop, like you say, Sharon, you drop into that place, then just be interested in the beautiful qualities of peace and contentment. And, you know, in a way, because it's beautiful, of course we're going to want to look, kind of get close. Like, can I get closer? Can I rest more fully in this, in these beautiful qualities, this beautiful mind state, this beautiful mind state? And then you'll notice it's not really different than loving kindness. And you realize that, you know, like, because this is how the idea is that whatever our doorway into that wholeness whether it's a formal loving-kindness practice or not, the idea is that once we've gone through the doorway, we want to open it up. We want to help it expand. Its nature is to expand. But sometimes, out of habit, it's not expanding. So it's, it's sort of, in a sense, stuck with this particular image. And you want to see that that expansive feeling of wholeness isn't dependent on that particular image of nature. But it actually can include everybody, everything, every situation. And so that's the, that, because that will deepen the healing, the contentment, the stability of the mind when we universalize that experience of love or wholeness or contentment. Yeah, anything else before we go on? Yeah, Robin. What did she say? Remind me. I had noticed this even in a small group that I was with a few weeks ago. How much easier it is for me to feel loving kindness towards a little bird that's in my way on the street than if a person drives in front of me on the street. It ain't loving kindness. But with a bird, I go, oh, come on. Yeah. 
and I think the bottom line is just because it's uh, we just want to be pragmatic. You know, back to what Jana was saying. It's like find what works for the mind, or this mind. You know, the way this mind is conditioned, so that we are able to find the door that we can knock on and will open, and the heart will flow with wholesome qualities of patience, tenderness. You know, where you don't have to pretend to be patient or tender, you are patient and tender with that bird. Well, and, and the realization of that, that I have that in Indy, such love for nature, yeah. um, makes it hopeful that maybe it can be spread to the human Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you then reflect, like you just said, Robin, on how beautiful, how amazing that this heart, this mind, can be tender, loving toward a simple bird. That just, the key is to, not just to have metta, but to notice that it's beautiful. That's the important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the words are just supports to be mindful of the feeling. So this is a mindfulness practice, but it's a focused mindfulness practice on the experience of connection, of love, of intimacy. So Well, and this is always the case, you know, it's people make the distinctions between sort of more directed concentration, you know, meditations and more meditations where we're just letting things happen. It's like whether we like it or not, until the mind is really awakened, we need to be participating. We need to be learning as we go. That's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness is not just being receptive. There's an equal active part to mindfulness where we're aware of how things are unfolding. Same with the loving-kindness practice. We're not just doing the phrases. There's also this wisdom active that's understanding moment by moment the effect of the phrase. And then we'll see, well, the way I'm reflecting or the way I'm repeating a phrase or the way I'm feeling my heart, let me try it this way. Because I've been noticing I'm doing it this way and things are getting stuck. So that we're constantly making little or sometimes bigger adjustments, adapting, adjusting, because we're that the whole process is being, in a sense, driven by our understanding of the basic play between release and contraction. You know, unskillful unskillful and skillful. That's what it's all about. Whether we're doing metta or inside practice or whatever kind of service we might do in the world. It's always about like observing, watching the heart, watching things as they are, and noticing whether things are freeing up or getting tighter. Yeah, Jonathan. I want to ask a little bit about metaphor for difficult people. And the reason I'm interested in this is that I figured out in my mind one stuff that's the most significant trigger for claiming an aversion is judgmentalism. So, finally figured that out. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm doing meta for difficult people, 
is this a way to begin to train the mind toward not being judgmental toward a person or a group of people that I am inclined to be very negative and judgmental about? Yeah. Is this a useful approach to the matter for difficult yeah, let me change let me change the, the question a little bit. Let's go back to that, uh, you know, just another way to think about practice. Two avenues. Orienting the mind towards what's difficult, orienting the mind towards what's beautiful. Now, if you when you're doing metta, the real objective is to orient the mind towards what's beautiful. It isn't about resolving this tension you have with this group of people. Although it might hopefully will really help. So here, the intention, the motivation uh, with metta is to protect ourselves from you know, judgment and to bring the mind to a beautiful place and then to freely give it away and to finally let go completely in the goodness of the heart, trusting the heart completely to be good. Now, just in the preliminary work with uh, noticing that there is something beautiful to cultivate and then cultivating, orienting the mind towards what beautiful, what is beautiful, you will start to feel more contentment in your life. These people still irritate you. You still have a lot of judgment. But right now, you're feeling more contentment, more sense of wholeness, more peace, more ease, more just pleasant feelings in the body, heart, and mind. Now, later... You know, you remember these people, or you're actually interacting with these people. That now there's still some residual effect from having done this reflection on what's beautiful. And so now, when you see those people, because of your habit energy or your conditioning, the judgment is going to arise. But boy, now the judgment is going to be contrasted with the residual feeling of wholeness and love and ease and that pleasantness that sort of is still left over from having had moments of real love, right? So now the mind is going to have a moment where it's really going to understand how destructive judgment is. Because, you know, we're judging all the time, but it never occurs to us often that it's really harmful to be dwelling in, in this critical judging mind this way. So that's one way it will really help. That... The more you experience periods of time of this deep healing and contentment and pleasantness, the wholesome pleasantness of love, all of the different negative tendencies of our minds just start to stand out. And not only do they stand out, but we actually, because we have some more stability, we, we have that residual good feeling, we're not so quick or impatient, like, oh, i got to get rid of this judgment. And we can do what you have to do in Vipassana, inside practice. In order to really understand judgment, we have to let it blossom. Vipassana isn't getting rid of the judgment. Vipassana is understanding what it is. So we have to let the judgment, and that doesn't mean we're going to act it out, but in our mind, in our body, in our heart, we let the judgment come and go. Because what we see isn't some sort of psychological technique to avoid being judgmental. We see that it isn't personal. That's the insight we need to see. Because once the mind starts to see that the habit of judging, being critical, isn't self, then it, doesn't, it isn't as likely to get identified when it gets triggered. And so it will come and it will go. And eventually it starves itself because 
through lack of identifying with the habit of judging, is what makes it slowly go away. Not by hating it. Hating judgment doesn't make it go away. Clever psychological techniques can be useful, but it doesn't make it go away. It's more like sidestepping it, you know. But what really makes judgment go away is not feeding it, not feeding it through not taking it personally. Then it goes away, and eventually it doesn't arise anymore. And it's just a question of how much momentum it has. So if a particular habit, like let's say judgment, is huge in our conditioning, it may take a lot of moments, thousands and thousands of moments of clearly seeing it come and go without identity, identifying with it before it really doesn't come up much at all. Other things aren't so strong, and we just see it a few times, the pattern a few times, and it, then it doesn't really come back. So it just depends on you know, how much we've been practicing it in the past, or maybe, who knows, past lives. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, Susan. Well, you know, for me, I'm noticing, which is it's probably kind of starting to shift, is that I notice that I'm always interacting with myself. So, like, I'll think something happening externally that I interaction that I'm confident and I feel good, an interaction that will stimulate some kind of difficult feeling. And it's like, wait, this feeling is me, you know? It's like something that's happening, but I'm experiencing this feeling, and it's so easy for me to externalize it. And it's like, this is my feeling. This has absolutely nothing to do with anything except for what is coming up to me, almost like I'm this vessel or this conduit for whatever is coming together in this moment. And it's like, wow, this is a really different way of experiencing Yeah. And it seems like it's really full of something very beautiful and like, like wow, you know, just a little tiny taste of it seeing very compelling. And, um, and what's really interesting is that it seems like it creates a sense of, like a sense of intimacy. So even though it's impersonal, I'm finding like when things are impersonal, there's a deeper sense of intimacy, like I'm really connecting in some way. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just beautiful because that's something that, you know, I long for is just to feel a deeper sense of connectivity to the long term. So it's like this, that letting go while connecting, it's like, it's like everything I want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's really beautiful. So I'm really grateful for yeah. And um, and it, yeah, and I and it's really neat. And, and also uh, similar note, when I'm feeling that longing, I went to a retreat and Mama Paul didn't talk this beautiful exercise, which was to reflect on the fact that whatever you're longing for, you already know because that's why you can long for it. Like so, this feeling of deep love or deep sensitivity—the mm-hmm. reason why you want it. To already in you, you know, and like, that really Thanks for sharing that, Susan. It's beautiful. 
Yeah, it sounds a little bit like this um, one description of one of the powerful uh, first insights is mind-body. You know, where uh, the we begin, the mind begins to recognize that it's just mind. It's always just mind and body. So it, the way I heard what I heard you saying, Susan, is something similar like. It's just a, a powerful simplification of what's often, most often, seems very complicated, our life, and just trying to be skillful, because we're dealing with this sort of internal and all my external kind of... But when we realize that it can't ever but be... that every moment of our existence, past, present, future, can't be anything but mind and body. It's always just this mind and body experience. Because we think it's like the world is out there, but actually, it's the mind and body. So out there, whatever it is, it's just the mind. Like I have this idea, I'm at common ground, but that's a thought in the mind, right? And there's, so there's the body-mind now, and it's exactly like you said. There's a, a sense of like relief because so many uh, layers of complication have fallen away when we start to have that insight. And, and then we're just, we realize that whatever this is, we're right in the middle of it, you know, and that's that intimacy piece. And so then it starts to be doable because it's like right here, everything is right here. It's mind and body. It can't ever be anything but mind and body. The whole idea that it's complicated is just a flash. It's just how the mind is flashing, you know, it's complicated, you know, but it's the mind body here. I don't know if that makes sense, but as an insight, it makes sense, you know, when we really start. Things get that simple. Yeah. Now, if you say that to a psychologist, <laughs> you may be in trouble. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> anyway, we're out of time. We have to leave it here. Let's just take a few moments and let go of the words and appreciate being here together. Feeling the natural <clears throat> gratitude and friendliness. quote from the Buddha that many of you have heard before, but it's just beautiful. It is in this way that we must train ourselves. By liberation of the self through love, we will develop love, we will practice it, we will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. So really nice to be here with everyone.